before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic podcast. Does the Mediterranean have a common culture that transcends its national, political and religious differences? And did its modern tourist industry develop naturally or as part of government planning and incentives? In this podcast, Professor Jeremy Black, author of A Brief History of the Mediterranean, talks to the critic's political editor, Graham Stewart, about the trading, colonial and strategic forces that have shaped Mediterranean history in war and peace. Professor Black, can we speak of a single Mediterranean civilization? No. The Mediterranean is a sea, a body of water, and that water acts as the both means of interaction, but also the barrier between different societies and contrasting civilizations. And so if we talk about the Mediterranean of the Roman Empire, one period where there is a, a unity of imperial control ringing around the Mediterranean. Is that perhaps the, the period where one might say there was a certain unity, albeit we should speak in terms of it being Roman rather than, than in, in a more broad Mediterranean term? Or even in that, would that, even in the period of Roman unity, even that would have to be unpicked as looking at different aspects? Yes, I mean, I think that's reasonable because there is a commonality of Romanitas, although it's a commonality that stretches to such well-known Mediterranean cities as modern-day Trier or Cologne or York or London. So, I mean, it's, uh, um, but it is a Mediterranean-based um, civilization uh, where the key three cities are Rome, uh, Alexandria and later Byzantium, all of which are linked by maritime routes across the Mediterranean and which um, together provide a cultural heritage. But that cultural heritage is very much affected, as I tried to show in my book, by um, the impact of outside forces, whether you're thinking of the so-called barbarian invasions uh, in, in Europe, whether you're thinking of the, as it were, similar Islamic ones in uh, the Near East and North Africa, um, all of those, although they are influenced by the societies that they take over, nevertheless are also different to Romanitas. One thing that strikes me as both obvious but interesting is that the Mediterranean is a, is a very large sea, but it, it's not an ocean, and therefore, for all the storms and, and difficulties of navigating it, it is navigable, but is also large enough for there to be the differences uh, in the uh, lands that border it for, for, tra for trade of different, different items, different objects, different goods to, to be successfully made. But one might also say that of the Baltic Sea, which of course becomes very important later, but the Mediterranean uh, trade and the civilizations that develop around it are so much older and so much deeper and more profound than in what we might say were, were other comparable uh, seas. Is there any real sense of, of why the, these Mediterranean uh, societies should have developed so uh, with such sophistication so early? Well, first of all, I, I 
whilst I agree with you in many respects, I'd be wary of assuming that profundity is necessarily absent from other uh, seas, whether inland seas or semi-inland seas. Um, you know, if you can look, for example, at um, really quite historic civilizations on the uh, western shores of the, Ca uh, the Caribbean um, in modern day you know, Yucatan, Mexico, and so on, the Olmecs, the Maya, and so on. So I, I wouldn't necessarily see profundity as simply a matter of the Mediterranean, nor would I necessarily see all Mediterranean areas of having uh, the same kind of historical resonance that you might see in the Nile Valley or around the Aegean. So, um, the modern uh, Mediterranean coast of Morocco, for example, was not a seedbed of a, a series of civilizations. So I think one has to be a little careful here. Um, but nevertheless, uh, there are economic reasons for the, uh, the strength of this particular area, including um, the alluvial um, uh, soil in the Nile, um, but, you know, uh, if you're looking in chronological terms, the Tigris and the Euphrates um, and the Indus were the basis of civilizations older than those of much of the area around the Mediterranean. So I'd be slightly wary if I, you know, I don't want to be critical, but I'd be slightly wary of that interpretation. I think it's an interpretation that makes more sense if you're looking at the period from 500 uh, BC or BCE, depending upon what terms you wish to use, onwards, when you're by then being able to look sim in a simultaneous fashion at classical Greek civilization, at the development of uh, Roman and Etruscan civilization, um, and at the you know the uh, the Phoenician diaspora, particularly in Carthage. So I think up from then onwards, one can look at a multiplicity of sources of economic and cultural uh, existence of, of, of a certain scale in the Mediterranean, and certainly the Greek cities and the Phoenician cities, which include part the bases of places like uh, modern-day Marseille, for example, um, are quite significant. And although with the Phoenicians one tends for the western basin of the Mediterranean to only think of one or two major ones, there, are, there were, as I, as I mentioned in the book, actually a fair number of Phoenician sites um, for example, on the coast of modern Algeria, and of course, um, Greater Greece, uh, if you want to use that term, also left cities in uh, on the coast of Sicily, uh, the coast of southern Italy, and so on. So I think one at that point can start to see a Mediterranean economic system of some depth and some of the trade routes down into the Mediterranean, for example, the Rhone Valley, are ones in which goods are being produced and brought to trade into a wider world. So yes, by that stage, I think one can uh, see, see such development, though, again, pre, pre the Columbian period, pre the arrival of uh, Christopher Columbus, there are trade routes in the Caribbean, you know, the Mayas traded along the eastern coast of Central America and within Central America, there are extensive trade routes in the Baltic. So one would be misled if one thinks of the Mediterranean as the only major inland sea with such, largely inland sea with such kind of, um, of, of culture. Well, this, this question of, of the depth of trade is an interesting one because it, it leads me to ask um, 
How deep inland does the, the Mediterranean political and cultural sphere spread? And would one speak about a different depth in, in different periods of history? Or is there a pretty consistent sense of where the, the influence of Mediterranean culture, have, how far deep inland it goes? No, there's no consistent sense. There might be a consistent rhetoric in particular areas, but there's no consistent sense in the sense that, sorry, in the, in the form that, um, you know, we focused initially on the Roman Empire, uh, but the impact of the Roman Empire um, was stronger, the long lasting impact of the Roman Empire was stronger in some areas than others. And there's a whole host of reasons that have been given for that, um, including the uh, depth of integration of local elites, uh, the disruption of conquest, uh, the nature of the economy, etc, etc. But um, if, for example, you were in um, Munich in um, 1850. Um, I don't think it would have come primarily to your attention that that, was, that that area had been part of the Roman Empire and therefore, in quotes, Mediterranean. Um, I don't think that would have been, you know, the, at the forefront of your mind. So I would argue that there are differences across time and also spatially. And uh, across time, I'm very interested what are the, the main things that are being traded in the Mediterranean. So if we look, for example, the, the Phoenician period uh, and then compare it to, uh, let us say, the, uh, the, the Middle Ages, the medieval period, are the same sort of things the, the main staples of trade or, or is, is there a shift in the pattern of what is traded? Well, there are shifts in pattern both in what, in traded, uh, what is traded, who trades and by, and in what destinations. Uh, in essence, with trade, um, it has to be a good that is, uh, that is, as it were, worth the burden. So most, uh, most um, areas go in as much as possible for auto production. In other words, your farmstead, your village, your immediate region will try and produce everything. But there are commodities you have to import. So a classic commodity traded in the Mediterranean is salt, for example. Salt is very much uh, produced in some areas. Um, generally where seawater is brought in into shallow, uh, you can see, still see that practice actually near Trapani in Sicily, was brought into um, to shallow waters and is then evaporated. So salt is traded from Sicily, from Sardinia, um, and is, you know, is, it, it, it will bear the burden of the cost of transport. The same with uh, metal or mineral goods because those are only produced in some areas. But, you know, let's say gut rot wine, the sort of thing that you might be turning into vinegar, the actual value of trading that will vary. So some wine is traded, but it tends to be higher value wine rather than lower value wine. The same with things that might be turned into, you know, clothes, textiles that might be clothed, turned into clothes. So a lot of it is not the commodity itself, but the value of that commodity. A lot is also to do with the fact that in the Mediterranean there are urban centres, Roman Alexandria or Constantinople are key ones, and those centres require goods to be taken to them. So Rome, for example, very much could not feed itself 
uh, in its immediate environs. So the grain trade to Rome was very significant coming out of principally of Sicily, out of North Africa. In this case, we're talking about the area around Tunis and also out of the uh, the Nile Valley, which also is a very major center of, uh, of grain export to Constantinople. So in those cases, the size of the urban market and the fact that the urban market is monetarized, i.e. they can pay for things or money or governments are willing to spend money for their benefit, is such that the value to be, is to be gained by selling them produce. Whereas, quite frankly, if, you know, on a poor area of of, uh, of shore where not much is going on, nobody is going to find it very advantageous to be to be shipping grain to it. And what about the trade in slaves? When did that uh, start to take off? In, in which directions did the trade go? Uh, when, when should we talk about a, a peak of the slave trade and, and when and how did it go into decline? Well, that's a whole multiplicity of <laughs> questions, Greg. Uh, let's start off. Um, Prior to the mid-19th century uh, in the modern era, most societies used coercive labor. Some of that coercive labor we refer to as slaves, but if you're thinking of serfs, indentured labor, or convict labor, the circumstances are not too different to slavery. So rather than thinking of slavery as something that's abnormal, it's something that is normal. A lot of slaves come from within societies, uh, and they can be people that have uh, the children of existing slaves, people that have been uh, enslaved as a result of criminal activity, or which can include sort of being politically undesirable, and people that have said, so, you know, you get the same sort of basis, to, you know, with slavery today in a country like North Korea, and people that have fallen into slavery as a result of debt. Now, all of those are major sources of slavery within these societies. On top of that, slaves are brought in from outside by war and trade. Um, war as in seizure, trade as in purchase. These factors can all be seen in antiquity. Uh, they can all be seen in societies such as those of um, uh, ancient Egypt, uh, the Greek cities, ancient Rome. Um, I think it's fair to say that in post-Roman society, um, there are changes because you start to see in both Christendom and Islam um, ideological tensions about the issue. So in other words, in, more, more of these tensions are in Christianity because although um, slavery um, is still uh, normative in the, uh, let's say, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th centuries AD, uh, you increasingly find um, Christian commentators, bishops, uh, uh, arguing that Christians should not enslave other Christians. Um, and that becomes increasingly important. Now, in the Islamic world, um, there is a similar debate about whether it's acceptable for Muslims to enslave other Muslims. Uh, you can follow these in my history of slavery if you're interested. But um, there is also uh, the practice of acquiring um, slaves from outside, by, particularly by conquest, sometimes by trade. And indeed, um, the sub-Saharan Africa really, I mean, you know, sub-Saharan African uh, slaves 
had um, Nubian slaves in particular from what would now be Sudan, had been prominent in uh, ancient Egypt and again in ancient Rome. Um, but large scale from across the range of sub-Saharan Africa, in other words, if you're going to the areas further west like uh, the Niger Valley, uh, the modern Senegal, well, Senegal Valley, you've got large scale slave trading across the Sahara from these areas to Islamic tra- uh, slave centers um, by Uh, the late first millennium, um, and the Islamic world has very large requirement for slaves, um, both for for labor, but also for sexual services, uh, which is a very important aspect. And in the Islamic world, on top of that, there is what you would call, or what I would call, state slavery or public slavery. In other words, you've got the idea that not only is slavery to be primarily a matter of slaves at the behest of private individuals, which is how people in Britain tend to think of slaves because they think of the slave trade. They have a very narrow view of the slave trade and they think of it as primarily the Atlantic slave trade of the early modern period. But also, of course, in the Islamic world, you have public slaves, in other words, slaves of the government. Um, ultimately, they are slaves of, as it were, a private individual in the sense of the caliph or the sultan or whatever is the, the emir or whatever the ruler is, because it's a, na- it's a nature of propriety or individual dynasticism. But they are state slaves. And you see this in particular, if you want a later example of that, with the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire, where, of course, uh, the infantry, the janissaries are, are slaves, are uh, a large amount of, as it were, the civil labor of the state are slaves. Uh, And this remains a practice into the 19th century. And similar slave armies can be seen with other Islamic states. Morocco, for example, uh, has a um, relatively impressive slave uh, slave army force by the uh, late 16th century. So the slave trade remains very significant. What really ends slavery in Africa is European colonization, because the Europeans, having decided to give up slavery themselves, decide uh, that, you know, they, they take an ethical position on it, they decide that slavery should be stopped by everybody else. So, for example, Algiers has been a major slave trading center for uh, centuries. Um, the you know the French conquer Algiers in 1830, and that's the end of the slave trade there. Um, uh, the British dip- diplomatic pressure is largely responsible for the end of the slave trade in the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire. So it's really the 19th century that sees the end of of slavery uh, in Africa. Although slavery continues in the 20th century uh, in in Ethiopia, for example. And you can still find slavery in modern African states, such as Mauritania, Sudan. I I want to turn to uh, the arrival of of the British in the Mediterranean. The the British presence in the Mediterranean starts with the War of the Spanish Succession and the ceding of Gibraltar in the Treaty of Utrecht at the beginning of the 18th century to Britain, or is there a British presence in any meaningful sense before then? Well, there'd been British or English uh, and indeed Scottish military presence earlier. And one can think of Richard uh, the Lionheart, for example. Richard I uh, takes part in the Third Crusade and also um, campaigns in Cyprus. Um, 
the uh, the English, the Scots, the Irish were all part of medieval Christendom, and that involved commitments in the Mediterranean, although not, if you're looking at the Crusades, not on the scale of the French, for example. Then if you're looking at the early modern period, um, uh, English warships had gone into the Mediterranean in part of the conflict, in part with conflicts against Spain. They'd also gone into the Mediterranean in the 16-teens and 20s in campaigning against North African slave raiders who had slave raided off the off the coast of um, coast of England, particularly Devon and Cornwall. In fact, um, so the the English had been there before, um, and uh, Robert Blake, very prominent uh, admiral, achieved distinction there in the 1650s. But you're absolutely correct in terms of a major military presence. There'd been a short-term military presence in Tangier, which had been acquired from Portugal in the, as well as Bombay had been, as part of the dowry of Catherine of Bragantha, the wife of, Philip, uh, the wife of Charles II. Um, but uh, in terms of a lasting presence, it's Gibraltar in 1704. Um, Minorca is, is seized in 1708, and the British hold that for most, though not all, of the 18th century. And other settlements, other positions, don't follow till later. Malta, the Ionian Islands... Uh, Cyprus and Egypt in succession. And uh, how significant was the Mediterranean for the Royal Navy? Uh, it's secondary to, to the Atlantic and, and, and the North Sea, but um, obviously very important during the Napoleonic Wars. But then does it fade a bit until we come to later in the 19th century with the, the occupation of, of, of Egypt in, in, in 1882? Or is it substantial throughout this period of the 19th century? Well, I think it's important throughout the period. I mean, the British Navy, for example, is bombarding Algiers in 1816 in its quest against the slave trade. Um, 1827, it's the British that take the largest role at the Battle of Cape Navarino, destroying the Turkish fleet off Greece, which is an instrumental act in the freedom of Greece from Turkish rule. Um, you know, I mean, in the in having Gibraltar and Malta, the British had major naval bases. Britain also was the largest naval power in the world throughout the 19th century. And e before the Suez Canal, Egypt was already seen as strategically influential and insignificant. Napoleon had gone there in 1798. The British had sent troops successfully to then to drive out the French um, occupation forces. Egypt was already seen as a key place on the route to India. And in many senses, you know, as I discuss in the book, the, the 19th century is an age in which Britain is the dominant power in the Mediterranean. And also, of course, it is the power that is uh, commercially very important and a major source of liquidity. Um, where it is less uh, resonant, less significant is culturally. I think it's fair to say that uh, British missionary activity has very little impact in the Mediterranean. Um, you don't get uh, the equivalent to the interest in British culture that you see, for example, in 19th century Germany or 19th century Russia. Obviously, um, not among the whole population there among essentially elites, but it, it, there are some signs of that in the Med, but not to the same extent. And of course, it is worth bearing in mind that being a Protestant state um, in a in which which is essentially 
um, Catholic, uh, Orthodox, and uh, Muslim, um, the, 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 as it were, cultural traction that Britain can have is relatively limited. In, in the second half of the 19th century, there becomes a fear that Russia is going to break out from the Black Sea and, and through the Bosphorus to become a major Mediterranean power. Do you think that was realistic or were countries like uh, France and Britain uh, um, engaged in, in, a, in a scare that, that was never really going to, going to manifest itself? Well, the first Russian fleet to go into the uh, Mediterranean is um, the fleet that overwinters in 1769 at Livorno, they used to call it Leghorn, and then sinks the Turkish fleet off the island of Kesme in the Aegean in 1770. And from then onwards, there is anxiety about Russia. Um, the British nearly go to war with Russia in 1791, the Otchikov crisis, which is about their anxiety about uh, Russian success. Uh, in the Black Sea and what its impact might be. Then in the late 1790s, um, the Russians uh, get involved in the war of the Second Coalition with France, and that leads to Russian interest in the Ionian Islands um, and you know, Russian military forces there. So I, I'd say it really starts in the late 18th century. But as you correctly say, it strengthens in the 19th century. And there are war panics, uh, for example, in um, 1878, in uh, um, 1885. And, of course, there is actually the Crimean War, which for Britain is 1854 to 1856. So there is anxiety about Russia. Uh, is it exaggerated? Well, <laughs> with the benefit of hindsight, we could argue all sorts of things. But the, the point is that Russia in the late 19th century seems more significant as a power, A, because it is allied with France, so, so that in the Fashoda crisis of 1898, the British have to face the prospect of war with France and Russia simultaneously, and that is worrying for them, to put it bluntly. And secondly, because um, as yet, Russia has not been defeated. I mean, Russia does not look so serious a challenge after its defeat by Japan in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 to 1905. But prior to that, it does seem to be the major world power that can challenge Britain. Now, ironically, as we now know, the major world power that could challenge Britain uh, economically was the United States, and Britain was uh, uh, able to arrange, as it were, uh, or benefit from um, the extent to which most of its interests were taken over peacefully, not violently, by the Americans. Um, and, of course, the major military challenge the British were to undergo was Germany. Um, but that was not necessarily obvious in the 19th century, and not surprisingly so. German unification isn't till 1870, 1871. Um, and although one or two commentators had alluded earlier to the danger that a united Germany might pose, that was not a majority viewpoint at that stage. Turning from uh, war to peace, the development of the Mediterranean for tourism, both the sort of the higher end tourism of uh, Monte Carlo and so on in, in the latter part of the 19th century, the, the casinos and, the, uh, the, the, and then Dan, um, uh, from the Riviera down to the popular tourism in Spain. Um, what were the patterns that, that, that allowed the, these different waves of tour, tourism to take off? And, and why particularly have, have the British 
become uh, so keen on on the coast of Spain uh, for their for their summer holidays. Tourism on any scale begins with the so-called Grand Tour, late 17th, 18th century. Um, and there, to a considerable extent, it's a matter of both the fun of being away, plus the idea of cultural aggrandizement, education, improvement. So those are the key things there. Uh, and essentially, you go to already existing urban centers. So in the Mediterranean, that means Rome, for example, Venice. Um, in the 19th century, people become more interested, and this prefigures the present situation, in going to, as it were, purpose-built or designed resorts, um, which where the most significant people are the traveller, the visitor. And there are those at particular elite levels. You refer to the Riviera, which, of course, is both French and Italian, but there are, for example, comparable Places, as I discuss, on the coast of Istria, for example, for wealthy Czechs and Austrians to go to. Um, uh, Amalfi is another example, Sorrento. And then, in essence, you get the development of a broader or wider, broader social tranche going abroad. Now, in the case of the British, uh, you would expect the British to be particularly significant here because. Um, Britain had a high disposable income for a large tranche of its public um, by the Victorian period and, of course, even more into the 20th century. On top of that, shall we say, the climate in much of Britain was not always so clement that people weren't attracted to see to seek blue skies elsewhere. If, like me, Graham, you have ever swum in the North Sea, you will understand why you might prefer the Mediterranean. Um, so there are, there are reasons why people went. And then, of course, as I try to discuss in the book, you have the impact of technology over the last 60 years, uh, the development of jet aircraft, um, the development also organizationally of particular package tour uh, um, methods, which very much were geared to a British working class public, which had previously gone to places like Skegness, Cleethorpes, etc., and where uh, people found that in the uh, lower uh, costs and bluer skies of the Mediterranean, uh, they had a different experience. So I don't think it's a surprise that the British should be significant, but be under no illusions. Very large numbers of French people go to the Med, uh, including to the, I mean, many of them obviously go to the um, to Languedoc, where there are some very big purpose-built resorts, but many of them also go to Spain. Um, and vast numbers of German tourists go not just to Spain, but also to uh, to Italy. Um, so don't be, you know, Turkey. So don't don't think it is only the British, though there is a interesting British narrative. And it's an interesting way of looking at British history is to consider changing patterns of of leisure and travel. I, I wonder, thinking particularly of the Spanish Mediterranean coastline, uh, a lot of these developments uh, happened during the period of, of Franco Spain. Uh, where the state obviously had a, had a, a strong um, a, a, a strong 
force and power and, and uh, sense of direction for the country. Did nevertheless these developments happen organically, by which I mean just individual entrepreneurs saw opportunities to exploit uh, uh, greater and cheaper travel? Or was there a role for the state in actually deciding as a conscious economic policy to, to pursue this, this uh, form of uh, economic expansion through tourism? Well, Graham, again, can I put in a plug? This history of the Mediterranean follows histories of Portugal, Spain, and Italy. And if you look at the ones on Portugal and Spain, you will see that essentially in the latter stage of the Franco um, system, uh, there was a degree of, he moved aside, shall, shall we say, some of the phalangist, more thuggish elements, uh, neo-fascist, more thuggish elements. And in later Franco, there's much more technocratic government um, and there is an attempt to in inverted commas modernize Spain which includes bringing in foreign capital and tourism is explicitly encouraged in the 60s from that point of view 60s and 70s the same with the Salazar regime in Portugal I've forgotten the year I think it's 1964 that the major airport is built in the Algarve. But again, it's exactly the same uh, priority. So you've got an idea that this is going to be a way to bring in foreign capital, a way to, as it were, um, produce prosperity without disruptive social change. Because you must remember that although both the Salazar, although the Salazar regime and the Francoist regime were different, uh, um, Salazar was very hostile to what he saw as fascism. Although they were very different, uh, each of them was worried about the development of a proletarian working class, and quite frankly, tourist resorts were not associated with a proletarian working class. Um, so the idea that this was a benign area of investment, and then as you correctly say, there was local investment money as well as external investment money for those purposes, and it was cheap. I mean, because the major burden uh, that you had to face was to get planning permission, which if the government was on your side was absolutely zero problem, and to get in infrastructure built, prim primarily roads within the country and airports, again, which were fairly cheap. And again, if the government was behind you, the, gov the, the major cost of that was taken. Uh, you're using system-built um, block architecture, uh, low-cost labor to build it. Um, so it was not an uh, expensive uh, uh, situation. And then, of course, you know, the principal beneficiaries of this um, are the um, working class in, um, in Britain and in um, Germany and France. Now, interestingly enough, you get the same parallel in Eastern Europe. So you get the development of resorts, for example, Varna on the Black Sea in Bulgaria would be a good instance of that. And, you know, East German uh, workers would get on long train journeys uh, to go from, say, Leipzig or Dresden to Varna um, to have exactly the same experience, which had been purchased for them cheaply by using essentially uh, relatively crooked building uh, uh, practices by exploited local labour, but providing them with a with a you know with a time in the sun. Uh, finally, I want to ask about the future of of the Mediterranean. Um, this great uh, uh, 
dynamic force of, of trade, of civilizations, and yet um, many people in, in Northern Europe, now uh, particularly economists, rather snootially refer to the economies bordering the Mediterranean as, as Club Med. It seemed to be heavily indebted and uh, you know, dependent on tourism, but not on dynamic entrepreneurial uh, growth. Is this something that, that you foresee continuing, a, a, di a diversion between Northern Europe and, and Mediterranean Europe, or is the Mediterranean, does it have uh, what it takes to revive itself again? Well, in the very, very long term, uh, Graham, um, you know, with continental drift, Africa is moving northwards towards Europe and the Mediterranean will cease to exist. But I think you're looking at a shorter time span than that. So if we're looking at a shorter or more immediate time span than the extinction of the Mediterranean, um, I think you've got cultural issues. Uh, again, I do go into this at quite some length in the book. Remember, we're not just talking about um, the Mediterranean per se. We're asking questions such as what, whether individual nations make a difference. In other words, if you're in the French Mediterranean, are you saying that you're having the same kind of um, socio-cultural uh, constraints on economic development that you would find if you were, uh, if you were shall we say, in uh, Libya or Tunisia or Egypt? Um, no, the answer is no. I mean, I think there are some common problems here. I mean, Northern Europe does appear to be more dynamic, more meritocratic, more mobile and more growing than Southern Europe. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and in the Mediterranean as a whole, the size of the public sector is a major problem. And that's true of both the Christian and the Islamic Mediterranean. So in Cyprus, the civil service is both the biggest employer and it pays the highest salaries. Corruption, the sort of thing we're not supposed to talk about, is also a problem in some Mediterranean societies. Egypt, Montenegro, Slovenia, Spain. Italy is far from exhaustive list. Criminality, Albania, southern, southern, uh, southern uh, Italy again. And for example, corruption makes it very difficult to enforce the regulations on traffic and waste disposal, on uh, pollution. Um, and this is helping to make the sea itself a far less attractive place. And I do discuss impact on things like fish yields and the type of fish coming through. So I think there are problems there. Um, one would be naive if one imagined that uh, northern societies are necessarily free from problems. I mean, you know, there is a large mafia in St. Petersburg, for example. And as we know, uh, corruption uh, can be a problem in planning issues um, or trade unions very much so um, in the United Kingdom. So I think one's got to be to be wary of assuming that original sin resides within the ambit of the Mediterranean sun. Uh, but nevertheless, there are clear diff difficulties in creating a strong sense of public culture and then empowering it sufficiently to deal with what one could regard as antisocial behavior. And I would say corruption, pollution, criminality, lawlessness are clear instances of that. 
I think that is a problem, and I think linked to that as a problem is that the size of the state is too large, and linked to that also as a problem is that the size of the state acts as a burden on the private economy, and unemployment rates can be very high in these areas, particularly uh, in much of the uh, Islamic Mediterranean, and linked to that, of course, can be the case that in some areas, birth rates are well above what you might regard as sustainable economic opportunity. So there's a whole host of problems. They vary by society. So the clannishness of Albanian society, which is very much linked to the particular nature of its attitude towards government and law, is, shall we say, not the same as you would get in Catalan society. Um, so there are big differences there. You know, I mean, many Italians are absolutely horrified by uh, aspects of southern Italy. Uh, much of the southern Italy is horrified by what they regard as the snobbishness and arrogance of much of northern Italy. So, you know, you can go both ways on this. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that it's the Mediterranean that dictates an outcome, but I would say that there are many problems on all of the shores of the Mediterranean. And, you know, and if I might put in just a mention, what I tried desperately to do in the book was to write a crossover book that addresses these issues. So in other words, it's a book, there is a selected further reading, but it's a book written without footnotes because I want to emphasize as much as possible to take the intelligent reader and to say these issues can be discussed without you having to have a PhD in order to understand the peculiar way in which academics write. Um, and I think, you know, I've, I've enjoyed writing it, but I would recommend those people that want to read it, and I hope we can then discuss some of these other ones to also look at the, the histories I've written of Italy, of Spain, and of Portugal, because they're trying to produce a, a way of looking at countries' history and present-day geography. Well, uh, whatever the, the troubles and economic problems of the Mediterranean at the moment, I think most of us shifting quarantine rules apart would probably like to be by the shores of the Mediterranean right now. Uh, Professor Jeremy Black, author of A Brief History of the Mediterranean, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Graham. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.